James 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is God's word. You can sit down. Let's pray. Lord, being commanded to be gloomy is a hard thing, and we acknowledge that. So I pray, Lord, that as we look to your word, that our gloominess would be in response to ourselves, and our joy would be in response to seeing you in your word transforming us into your likeness. Preach, Lord, from your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the, um, one of the more difficult aspects of, of James's letter, as we've been studying James's letter, is we don't know exactly what was happening in the churches that he's, that he's writing to or the church that he's writing to. So we don't, we don't have a... Um, a letter from the church. When I have a recording of the phone call from the church to set alongside James's letter, and we don't have anything in the letter that says something like, "Now let me respond to this particular land dispute that that Keith and Zach are having." All we get in James's letter are these generalities. We know there are some issues, some general issues between rich people and poor people. In the church, we know that there are some issues about people who want to be elders and they probably shouldn't be in the church. And, and apparently, there are some people just running their mouths, and that's in every church, and that's causing problems as well. So, we, so we have this general idea of the general problems that are, that are arising in the church that James is writing to or preaching to or whatever this is that he's giving them. And we also know this, so just to give us a little perspective, we also know about the book of James that the, the, the problems that the, the church is having are, have arisen in the context of trials, right? We saw that at the very beginning in James chapter 1, these trials that they're enduring. And we'll see uh, in a couple of weeks more what some of those trials are that they're enduring. But for now, all we know is this, some external pressures 
from outside the church are pressing in on the church and they're exposing, these pressures are exposing like a hydraulic press, what's inside the church, what's in their heart. What is in the hearts of the members that have received this instruction from James? And what we're seeing does not look good, does it? We sang together as a church oh, how good it is when the people of God, the family of God is together, dwelling in spirit and love and unity. They can't sing that. Or at least they can't sing that about themselves. They can say that would be true if this were true of us. But the, the church that James is writing to does not have those characteristics at this point. Things don't look good. Men and women in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, who were supposed to be acting like they love one another, are fighting and quarreling. And James's aim here in his instruction to them is, is to put a stop to it. And, and what we're going to see as we work our way through these first 10 verses is that James's, uh, his, his treatment comes in four parts. The first part is the, diag- or the description of the dysfunction. So there's a dysfunction in the church, and he's going to describe it for us. The second part is, is the diagnosis of the disease. What's really going on in the church? The third part is God's response, the divine response. And finally, part four, the divine directive. So those are your four parts that we're going to be breaking this up into. I'll try to let you know where we are as we go along if you're taking notes. But if you're not, it'll be okay because we're just going verse by verse. So let's look at verse 1, the description of the dysfunction. He asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? See if I can fix this. You know, I used to, uh, Adobe changed it so I can't just swipe anymore. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> so what causes uh, quarrels and fights among you, he asks? So there's, here's this, this outward problem. It's an exposed problem. You can see it. If you look at the church, they're fighting and quarreling. There's open conflict in the church. So that's the outward problem that he sees. And then he says there's also an inward problem. Look at the second part of verse 1. Inwardly, there are these passions that are at war within you that are causing these outward problems. You might look in, in, in your Bible, and my Bible has it. There's a footnote. This passions that, are, that is at war within the church. My footnote says that, that the word can also be translated pleasures. And if you, if you look it up, it's, uh, the, the word passions is, is a translation of the same word that we get the word hedonism from. So you have these external problems, fighting and quarreling, coming from this internal fighting, this internal uh, passions that are at war with one another. So, so it, what he's saying is whatever you're pursuing, whatever you think that if you capture it, you will be satisfied, that's your, that's your passions, that's your cravings, your desires, and all of that is, is at war within you, and that's causing you to be at war with other people. The problem with these cravings is that we truly believe that these desires, these passions, these cravings are the way to the good life. And because of that, if, if I follow this desire towards that thing that I'm going for, and that thing is the, the way to the good life, because of that, anything I must do to get there 
is justified, right? The means to that end is justified. Whatever we must do to get that good life, whatever we think will bring us happiness, whatever we must do, whoever we must go through, is justified. Even if that means destroying people, that's what James shows them. Look at verse 2. You desire that thing, that craving. You don't get it. You're not getting it. Something's in your way, so what do you do? You murder. That's, that's strong language. <laughs> but, but, but think of Jesus' wisdom in the Sermon on the Mount. Like in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Jesus, Jesus taught us that your heart posture towards someone, when you intentionally say something hurtful or spiteful or cruel, that heart posture is the same as the heart posture of physical violence, murder. It's the same thing. Again, it's not that your desire is to hurt someone. Remember, the desire is something else. But when someone is in the way of what you desire, that's where the wars come from. So just think geopolitically. All right, one country wants this oil field or this water source or this port, and another country stands in the way, and what happens? There's war. This is where war comes from. War isn't the goal. It's the means to the goal. Someone else gets in the way of any of our cravings, something we want. It's not that we planned to say something hurtful or to whine, or manipulate, or guilt trip, or blow up at them. It just happened, doesn't it? They're, they're not doing what we want them to do. It's actually their fault. They're in the way. If they didn't want to get hurt, they should have stayed off the highway. And he further describes this dysfunction that's happening in the church there in the second part of verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So, so it's not just that we have these conflicting objects of desire that are causing problems, intersecting highways. The problem is the desire itself is covetous desire. When author says coveting is willingness to turn an earthly object of human desire into something of ultimate concern. Let me say that again, because I thought that was a really helpful way of putting it. Coveting is a willingness to turn an earthly object of human desire into something of ultimate concern. And again, if what we long for is of ultimate concern, if we think that thing is going to give us happiness or the good life or prosperity or whatever it is, we'll do anything to get it because it's worth it. It's of ultimate concern. And all this time... James, all this that he's showing us here, James, like a good doctor, he's simply been showing us what's happening in our hearts, right? This is what's happening outwardly. This is what's happening inwardly. This is the dysfunction. And aside from labeling these desires as covetousness, and that's it's, it's, it's a, a technical word that we see in the Ten Commandments, nothing he has said so far is really that different from what you might hear from a secular psychiatrist or a philosopher. In fact, Immanuel Kant said a lot of this exact same stuff, and he wasn't looking at the Bible. He was just using his reason. He didn't come to to his conclusions from studying Scripture. You don't have to have the Scriptures to see what James is seeing here. He's just describing the dysfunction in the church 
Outward fighting is coming from your inward conduct. Anybody can see that, right? We don't, this is, you get this stuff, this is really, really elementary stuff. If you don't understand that the reason why you're fighting because you want stuff, then, 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 then we have more work to do. But James is assuming they get that. He's, he says, uh, yes, this is what's happening outside the church. This is what's happening in your heart that's causing this. But it doesn't stop there. He doesn't say the reason for your conflict is the sin of coveting, so stop coveting and all this will go away. He takes this a step further. Gets to a deeper level. Beneath the external sins of conflict, beneath the internal sins of coveting, James reveals to us and to to his church that when we're fighting with one another, the problem is actually spiritual. So to see this true diagnosis, we have to look at the second part of verse 2. Look at at part 2. You have the, the diagnosis of the disease. Look at, look at verse 2 now. You do not have, like you want it, you don't have it, because you don't ask. And then look at verse 3. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he's saying, half of you aren't seeking the Lord in prayer, and those of the other half of you who are seeking the Lord in prayer, you're praying for selfish things. You're all wrong. <laughs> The diagnosis is that the heart, is it's not just covetous, it's that it's not turned in the right direction. It's not turned Godwardly. It's, it's turned inwardly on itself. God, like other people, is either being ignored altogether or is being used as a means to a selfish gain. You see the problem? And there, that's, the, that's the root of the problem. And James names it in verse 4. What is the root sin? Adultery. He says, you adulterous people. How do you get there? The reality is that when we kill one another with our words, we steal from one another, when we cheat one another, when we're bitter with one another, gossip about one another because of our, our, our bitter hearts or our coveting hearts, the deeper transgression, what he's showing us here, the deeper transgression at the heart of it it is spiritual adultery. This is very reminiscent of Old Testament language. You read the Old Testament, you see this kind of stuff all over the place. Israel was often described as the bride of the Lord, the bride of Yahweh. So, so, so when Israel went after other gods, she was called what? Adulteress. Jeremiah 3.20 says it like this. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband... So have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. That's just a a glimpse. It's all over the Old Testament. James's uh, that that relationship in the Old Testament with Israel and the Lord that didn't end in the Old Testament. In fact, it found its greater fulfillment in the New Testament. Now, the church, the true Israel, is the bride of Christ, the Lord. So we have Old Testament. Israel, the Lord, bride, bridegroom, and now we have that fulfilled, that picture is now finding its fulfillment in the church in Christ. So James's point then is when we, as church members, look outside of Christ for satisfaction, 
When we desire the world and the things of this world rather than Christ, we show ourselves, we show ourselves to be adulterous, like Israel. In the Old Testament, this, this spiritual adultery was always linked with idolatry. Right? You see that. Israel would abandon the Lord God and go after the Canaanite gods, like, like Baal or, or Molech or the Egyptian gods or the Babylonian gods or whoever it is that some other people that seemed to be powerful were worshiping. They did not believe that their husband would provide for them, that the Lord would provide for them, so they bowed down to other gods. Now, how are we adulterous? How is... How is just fighting and quarreling then adulterous? Because we wouldn't say that we're bowing down to other gods when we do that, would we? Sure, no, no. You don't, you don't have to build an Asherah pole or go into a pagan temple to be unfaithful to Christ, though. That's James's point. All it takes is friendship with the world. Friendship, look at the rest of verse 4. Do you not know? That friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship here has the idea of flirting. And if we say it that way, it makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? Flirting with the world is enmity with God. And that word enmity goes way back. So some of you might recognize it from Genesis 3. After the fall, after the serpent deceived the woman, she rebelled against God, and after her husband abdicated his throne in favor of his wife and the serpent, well, the Lord levied out these judgments. And his judgment of the serpent, serpent included with it a, a promise of what was to come. Genesis 3.15 says this, I, the Lord, will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Remember that from Genesis? I told you the most important verse in the entire Bible. Still true. So, so way back in Genesis, at the very beginning of the post-Eden world, you have these two domains that are set up. The domain of the serpent and the domain of the offspring of the woman. And if you trace that line all the way through the Bible, you find out the offspring of the woman is the promised Messiah. And that this Messiah is to be given a kingdom that the Bible calls the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's called the eternal kingdom. You might see it described as the new creation. It is the kingdom that even now, because the Messiah has come and has been revealed in Jesus, this new creation kingdom is even now breaking into the world and will one day fill the world. So if you belong to Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, and if you've been baptized into Christ, you've declared your allegiance to this king and his kingdom. So in becoming a, a Christian, then, the book of Colossians describes it as being delivered or rescued out of the domain of darkness, the old domain, the old world, transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son, the one that is breaking into the new world, into the world. The, the rival kingdom... So you have Christ's kingdom, this, this new kingdom that is coming, that's being set up. The rival kingdom to Christ's kingdom is that domain of darkness. The old creation, you could call it. The, the New Testament, though, always, nearly always calls this old creation the world. The cosmos. It's ruled over by the, the serpent, the prince of the power of the air. It goes by names like Satan or the devil. And he has several demons that, over the millennia, 
have posed as gods, gods worthy of worship. These, these are the same creatures, the idols, that were worshipped by Israel when they rebelled against the Lord. But the world, that world, is still the world today. Though the new creation is, is breaking into the world through the church, the world is still influenced by the demonic. And you can see it if you look closely. What was once child sacrifice to Molech is now abortion at the altar of the self. A demonic deception. Where sex with a prostitute in the temples of Baal was once a temptation for Israel, now it's pornography and the celebration of sexual deviancy in the temples of progressivism. Where the worship of Elil or Hadad or Zeus was, was always a temptation, now the climate cult has replaced it. The deceptions are the same, but they take on new names. And what James showed us last week is that there is a wisdom that is characteristic of the kingdom of Christ. It is the wisdom of God, and it is, the, it is available to us kingdom citizens through the Spirit. And that wisdom is what enables us to think and to act within Christ's kingdom in such a way that our lives glorify our King. We saw last week what that wisdom looks like, right? Look at, look at chapter 3. Verse 17, the wisdom from above, that is the wisdom that is characteristic of the kingdom that is breaking in, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good gifts or good fruits, impartial and sincere. And what does this wisdom lead to? Peace. Now contrast that to the other wisdom, the wisdom of the world. And remember whose wisdom this is. Where does it come from? This wisdom originates in the Garden of Eden at the rebellion where humanity went from friendship with God to friendship with the serpent. And the characteristics of the world's wisdom, the serpent's wisdom, are selfish ambition, pride, bitter envy, covetousness, and then all the wicked ways that we treat one another because of those, those postures of the heart. So you can see, you can see how selfish ambition and bitter envy would lead to theft and adultery and murder and dishonoring parents and so on. James, James says that those heart postures, selfish ambition, bitter envy, those heart postures of the world lead to every vile practice. All right, so you're starting to see what's happening here? When these churches, when the church that James is writing to, when they exhibited all of this type of conflict, all of this worldly type of conflict, this fighting and quarreling, James is saying, they're thinking and acting according to the world's wisdom. They're following the way of the world and showing that their allegiance is not to Christ and His kingdom. It's not to Christ, the bridegroom. It's not to Christ, the king of the new creation kingdom. Rather, their allegiance seems to be to the demonic powers of the world. Hence, he says, you're being unfaithful. Hence, you're an adulterer. idolatry, spiritual adultery. Look at the next part of verse 4. Therefore, because that's what's happening, that's the reality of what's happening in your heart. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We can't think of the world and the ways of the world as neutral. 
Here's how we typically think about it, and this is wrong, okay? But this is not the way I want you to it's, it's not like there is Satan worship over here, and there are demons, and sacrificing goats, and drinking cat blood, and orgies, and witches, and spells. And then here in the middle, there is all the normal people who are basically good but have some bad days, and then over here is heaven. That's kind of how we think about it, isn't it? That's the way our world thinks about this division. And so we, we kind of think, well, we can go back and forth between the world where everybody's basically normal and good, except for they have bad days. We can go back and forth between the world's ways and the ways of heaven, depending on how spiritual we're feeling, depending on how much we really want to pursue Christ, but it doesn't really matter as long as we don't go over here to the witches, right? That's not it. That's a, that's a, that's a deception to think of the world in that way. What James is teaching us is a much simpler but much more disturbing reality. There is the world and there is Christ's kingdom. That's it. Two kingdoms, two ways to live. If we are at home in this world, if we long for the things of this world, if we live and act as if this world is our hope and our joy and our comfort, well, then that's going to show And the reality of that is we either don't belong to Christ's kingdom or we're just acting like we don't want to be there. Either one of those is not good, is it? And that's not insignificant. Because what James is going to show us is the overarching storyline of the Bible is that God is jealous for the allegiance and the worship of his people. Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it's no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Now, you can flip through your entire Bible and you will not find a verse that says that except for right here in James. What he's not doing is picking out a verse out of Exodus or Genesis or Isaiah or something and just re-quoting it. He's summarizing the entire story of the Bible here. So this is the storyline of the Bible. Read the scriptures. Read the Bible. What do you see? From the very beginning, God has given us life and breath and all that we need. He's blessed us. He's called us to glorify him with the lives we have. And yet in our rebellion, we seek to make much of ourselves. And this grieves the Lord. He desires to be near his people. He yearns jealously over the Spirit. That is the breath, the life that he's given us. That's the, that's the reality. And if we stopped right there, it would be not a good way to finish. Here we are in rebellion, and here's God yearning, and that's it. But what does God do in response to this situation, in response to our spiritual adultery? Look at verse 6. This is part 3 of the divine response. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. God God is not a powerless God. God is not a powerless God, but an infinitely powerful, overcoming God. The response of God to our spiritual adultery is not to just sit there and mope and cry effeminately and whine over his rebellious wife. Oh, I yearn jealously over my people, but there's nothing I could do, alas, free will and all. 
No, the response of a loving God to a people who have rebelled against them, a people who are looking to return to bondage to sin, a response to people wandering in the darkness, God's response is overcoming grace. Overcoming marvelous grace. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. That's what James means when he said, but God gives more grace. It's a comparative adjective. The more is being compared to our enmity with God. So where we are flirting with the world, we have made ourselves enemies of God, but God's grace overcomes our enmity. God's grace overcomes our sin. God's grace exceeds our sin and our guilt. Brothers and sisters, if you are caught up in this never-ending cycle of conflict, and you're realizing now, the reason for this conflict is not the other people. And that's coming to you for the first time. Amen. And you're realizing also, it's not your circumstances. Amen. The reason for your conflict is your heart. You're seeing that now. It's in your heart. Your own heart is in love with the world. And what the Spirit is saying to you right now is God's response to you is not condemnation. But grace. Grace. Though the depth of your heart's sickness is spiritual adultery, let's just call it adultery, the grace of God is greater. The love of God is greater. So the question then is, all right, I'm seeing that. How do I respond to this grace? Because this seems good, doesn't it? Like we're not caught. We're not, we're not condemned forever. We're seeing now there's sin in us. There's rebellion against God. And there's something that God is doing to draw me back. This is, this is good. This doesn't depend on me. So how do we respond to his grace? Well, in a word... Humility, with humility. Look at, the, look at the rest of verse 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now look at verse 10. So you have verse 6 there, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now go down to the bottom of the section, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What do you have here? Humility, humility. It's a humble sandwich. So, so what, what's in this, this, this humble sandwich? What's happening between verses 6 and verses 10 are 10 commands. Boom, 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 boom. 10 commands that are going to call the, the divine directives. And this is part 4 of this passage. So between God's grace and leading to our humility, you have the 10 New Testament commandments from James, the divine directives this is part four of the passage. All ten of these commands have to do with humbling ourselves before the Lord to receive his grace or in receiving his grace. So the first and second commands go together. We see these in, in verse seven. Call this the allegiance section. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Two commands, submit and resist. By God's grace, we've been brought into the kingdom of the beloved son, but life in the kingdom, we need to understand, life in this kingdom is not automatic. It requires being subject 
to the king of the kingdom, to King Jesus. And that's the first command in this grouping. Submit to the king. Submit yourselves to God. It's a passive imperative, though. What do we mean by passive? Something that happens to you. It might, it might better be something like be subjected to the king. Since it's passive and it's something that happens to us, not something we're doing ourselves, we're being subjected to, it's the Spirit who's doing this. And it's the Spirit who does the subjecting. By the grace of God, the Spirit in us humbles us to receive Christ as our Lord. Now the flip side of this, allegiance command, is resist the devil. Do you see that in verse 7? Resist the devil. Now this word resist is misleading, because what do you think about when you see that word? You think, oh, resist a piece of chocolate cake, right? You're on a diet, I'm dieting, this piece of chocolate cake, I'm going to resist it. Or I'm, I'm going to resist a temptation to sin. I'm not going to look upon that temptation. I'm going to resist it. I'm not going to give in to that desire to be angry. I'm going to resist it. That's not what he means by resist here, okay? So I gave you all those examples don't follow them. That's not what's happening here. This verb here is the exact same verb as we see in verse 6, where it says, God opposes the proud. We are to do the same to the devil. Oppose the devil. It's an issue of allegiance. Now that we belong to the church, the bride of Christ, we are to actively and constantly consider ourselves enemies of Satan. We're to oppose him. Just as in a traditional wedding when you hear the vows and a bride and groom pledge themselves to one another, they say that we are forsaking all others. I keep myself only unto you for so, so long as we both shall live. Same thing that we ask of baptismal candidates. If you're baptized in this tank here, we're going to ask you, do you renounce Satan in all of his works? And our hope is that you would say, I do. And this tradition of renouncing Satan, forsaking Satan, it's as old as the church. We find it in writings going all the way back to the 200s. My favorite is in this little baptism instruction book by one of the early church fathers named Cyril. And in his booklet, he's talking to believers because believer baptism is all the way back to the beginning of the church. In his booklet, we find that on the night before baptism the candidates, who all who were going to be baptized, in, when, the, when, the, when the darkness fell, they would hold out their hands to the darkness and say, I renounce you, Satan. Baptism was more than just Sunday morning for them. It was an all-weekend thing. They're holding out their hands to the darkness, renouncing Satan. And then Cyril reminds these converts, let me read you what he says. He says, what then did each of you stand up and say? I renounce thee, Satan, thou wicked and most cruel tyrant, meaning, I fear thy might no longer, for that Christ hath overthrown, having partaken with me of flesh and blood, that through these he might by death destroy death, that I might not be made subject to bondage forever. I renounce thee, thou crafty and most subtle serpent. I renounce thee, plotter as thou art, who under the guise of friendship didst contrive all disobedience and work apostasy in our first parents. I renounce thee, Satan, the artificer and a better of all wickedness. He's a better writer than me. <laughs> By the Spirit's power in you, as the bride of Christ... Submit 
be subject to Christ, your husband. And as the bride of Christ, forsake all others. That's the instruction there. And as happy subjects of Christ's throne, don't just resist Satan like a piece of tempting chocolate cake, but renounce him, oppose him for the old abusive tyrant who wants nothing more than to destroy you. The second grouping of commands, there's three of them here, so you have the first two. We're already two in. Second grouping is three commands, and they have very similar language to what we find when approaching God in the Old Testament. So look at verse 8 for the next three commands. Draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Three commands. Draw near, cleanse, purify. Now what does that mean? Without the Old Testament Scriptures, this is confusing and abstract, isn't it? How do we draw near to God? Where is He? That we could go closer to Him. And even more confusing, what does washing our hands do? Right? It's not COVID anymore. We don't have to do that anymore. And how do we purify our hearts? These are massive questions that require some all-Bible, whole-Bible understanding. James's church, most, mostly comprised of Jewish Christians, would have known exactly what he meant by each of these. Exactly. We don't, so we have to do a little more work. So let's start with that first one, draw near to God. What does he mean by this? Well, in the Jewish understanding, the only way to draw near to God was to go to the tabernacle or the temple. That's where God's dwelling place was. So if you want to go near him, you go near him. It's a physical place. He's there dwelling with his people, in the, and, and to get closer to him, you, you go into the holy place in the temple. The problem, though, is only one person could go in there the high priest, and he could go in only on the Day of Atonement, provided he had sacrificial blood to cover him or atone for his sins. Before going in, what did he have to do? Wash his hands. We read that, didn't we, in, in Exodus. We saw that in the Exodus passage. Moses and Aaron, before going into the tent of meeting, cleansed themselves before going into God's presence, before drawing near to God. And that explains why James also says here, wash your hands, sinners, as the second command. Hand-washing is symbolic. It's, it's a visible acknowledgement. When I wash my hands ceremonially, visibly acknowledging that I have sinned externally. These hands have sinned. They are filthy. They are dirty. They need to be washed. We've sinned with our bodies, so we wash our hands. And so we must be ceremonially cleaned as we go before the Lord God. Aaron and Moses did that. The priests who followed them did that. But do you really think that this is what James is talking about? Going into the tabernacle or the temple? He can't be, can he? Right? He's a Christian. He knows that the temple curtain has been rent from top to bottom by God. He knows that the old temple is useless. God does not dwell there anymore. So what's James getting at? Why is he telling us, why is he using simple language to, to tell us what to do here? Well, when he says this next command, purify your hearts, that's a clue. That's a clue that he's not talking about the old ways. He's talking about the new covenant. Because nowhere in Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy or anywhere else is purify your hearts in instruction to God's people when they draw near to God. 
You don't have to purify your hearts before you go into the earthly temple because you can't. We know that this is new covenant language because we see almost the exact same language, clean hands and a pure heart in relationship to drawing near to God. We see this in Psalm 24. So turn with me to Psalm 24. I'll give you a minute, a moment to do that. because I want you to see what James is drawing on here. Typically, we, we, we read this passage and we think, okay, I'm just going like, to have, have happy feelings about God, and that's what it means to draw near to God. It's not what he's talking about. Psalm 24. Now, Psalm 24 is a psalm of David, and it's about the Messiah. The psalmist, King David, asks this question in verse 3, Psalm 24, verse 3, he says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Now, the mountain of the Lord is the original temple, the heavenly temple that the earthly structures were modeled after. So he's asking this question, What high priest is so high that he may enter the dwelling place of God in heaven? Who can really, truly draw near to God? That's what he's asking. Who can do this? And the answer is there in verse 4. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands represents sinlessness. This is someone who has never sinned. The priests on earth had to wash their hands because of their sins. But the one who enters into God's heavenly presence already has clean hands because he is sinless. He doesn't have to symbolically wash his hands. They're already clean. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? You guys who are in the Mark Bible study just a few weeks ago saw the, the, the read that the Pharisees asking that question, why does Jesus not wash his hands? Because his hands are already clean. They, he's not sinned. Notice also that the one who draws near to God has a pure heart. So he's not double-minded the way that we are. He has, he's never worshipped anyone but the Lord God. He can never, ever be accused of spiritual adultery. He has a pure heart, clean hands and a pure heart. And as Psalm 24 goes on, it seems that the only one who can enter into the gates of heaven and enter into the presence of God in this way, the only one who can draw near to God on his holy mountain is God himself, the Lord of glory. Look at verse 8 of Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is this king? Who is this one who can enter into the presence of God? Who could draw near to God? Who is this king? Who is this Messiah? And David answered, the Lord. And it's in all caps there, so you know he means Yahweh. He, he means God himself, strong and mighty, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, Yahweh, mighty in battle. This is amazing. You have this expectation based on Psalm 24 as well as Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 that the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited one who would represent the people of God in the presence of God, he would be divine. He would be God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. We see that in Psalm 110. So just as a little side note, do not let Jehovah's Witnesses tell you that Jesus isn't divine. If Jesus isn't God then Jesus isn't Messiah. 
Okay, so, so if James is picking up, let's, let's get back to the text. If James is picking up on Psalm 24 language, and I believe he is, and if he is talking about drawing near to God in this new covenant way, this is the age of Messiah, and Messiah Jesus has drawn near to God. He's the one who has shown himself to have clean hands and a pure heart. What's James asking us to do? Well, we can wash our hands. All right, James, I'll do that. I'll wash my hands. And that's represented in Christian baptism. We are baptized, cleansed, as we enter into the presence of God in Christ. Symbolic. But this heart cleansing, this is, oh, this is a lot harder, isn't it? Heart cleansing is much more difficult than going under the water or washing our hands. How do we cleanse our hearts? You know that people in the Bible have been asking that question in a very long time. Solomon asked that question in Proverbs 20. He says, who can say, I've made my heart pure? I'm clean from my sin. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one can clean their own heart from sin. We cannot cleanse our hearts. Only God can do this. And David, David saw this. Psalm 51, what does David say? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. He knows he can't do it. Solomon, his son, knew he couldn't do it. We know we can't do it. We can't create clean hearts, purified hearts. So how do we get clean hearts? If James is saying, you've got to have a clean heart, you've got to wash your heart. How do we do that? This inner cleansing is a work of the Holy Spirit. Just as our outer selves are baptized and washed, our inner selves must be baptized and washed. And that only happens through the Holy Spirit. Seems strange that James would command us to do something that we cannot do, doesn't it? That's the whole point. What he's doing is pointing us to Christ and what Christ has accomplished. Look at the way Paul describes what Christ has accomplished in Titus 3. Just listen. You don't have to turn there. Listen carefully. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness... And the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we may, might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So follow James's argument here. Christ, the Lord of glory, entered into the presence of God with clean hands and a pure heart. The only way one can enter into the presence of God. And then, in God's presence, making atonement for our sins, He turned and poured out His Spirit on us. And by His Spirit, He washes us and makes us new. And through the Spirit, we draw near to God in Christ. So, so when James says, when he commands us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, brothers and sisters, we do this in Christ through the Spirit. Draw near to God through Christ. Anytime you're reminded of who you are in Christ, you're drawing near to him. When you read the word, you hear from him speaking to you through his word, you're drawing near to him. When you hear him speak through his word from the pulpit, you're drawing near to him. When you gather with the church, the body of Christ, Christ is your head, you're drawing near to him. When you seek him in prayer as your mediator, you're drawing near to him. When you sing to him praise, you're drawing near to him. 
In a moment, we're going to come to the table. He's invited you to the table. One poet says, come to the table, sit down beside him. Your bridegroom wants you to join in the feast. In the Lord's Supper, we draw near to God as he draws near to us. See what James is doing? He's being poetic. And you, you have to know what he's alluding to, or you end up taking him literalistically, trying to scrub all the sin off your hands, like Lady Macbeth, trying to purify your heart just by like, willing it to happen, and, and drawing near to God through all these mystical, I'm going to get some crystals, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to draw near to God. You can't do any of these things. None of this is possible outside of Christ. So what James is instructing us to do here is remember who you are in Christ. Remember the cleansing that has been accomplished in you through Christ. So that's five of the Ten Commands. And the next five will go much faster. All of them are in verse 9. And they all have the same meaning. The meaning is this, repent. So look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. There's three commands. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There's, there's all five. Now, and I want you to remember the context here, the problem that James is addressing. There's conflict, quarreling amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. And what James is seeing is they're not even the least bit ashamed of it. They're not embarrassed. In fact, they feel justified in their sin because they see it just as, as a means to an end, right? They're chasing their own passions and cravings. And James has pointed out that the real reason that they feel justified in their sin is because they're far too at home in the world. They're doing what the world does, acting the way the world acts, behaving selfishly the way the world, under the leadership of Satan, behaves. And they're not bothered. At best, they just shrug it off. That's eh, not really a big deal. It's just fighting and quarreling. And if it's that bad, okay, God forgives. But the sin, the true sin, the heart of their sin is adultery. They've forsaken Christ, their bridegroom, when they should be forsaking the world instead. So here's this church in love with the world, stripping herself before the world to please the world and the false gods of the world, the gods of pride and bitterness. And James says, you need to repent. You need to repent of your adultery. And what he's looking for with these five commands is a deep repentance. Be wretched, be afflicted, be broken, weep over your sin. That's, that's what all of those commands in verse 9 are calling for. Now, don't hear me wrong. It's not, there, there's a Catholic way to read this and there's the right way to read this. It's not that these actions here are things we must do to receive God's forgiveness. It's not, it's not like Catholic penance, although this is a passage they use. It's not like you can just say eight Hail Marys and seven Our Fathers, and that is the affliction that God's looking for. This isn't penance to get forgiveness. The work has already been accomplished by Christ on the cross. Already been accomplished. The grace has already been given, and it is greater than our sin. What James is looking for is a heart posture that receives that grace. And that heart posture is not pride, it's not arrogance, but humility. So what you see here in verse 9 is James's attempt, inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired attempt to accomplish 
the picture of a humble heart, a heart that is broken over sin. It may be a little bit graphic if you think about it this way, but just, let's just use James's language to kind of get a sense of what he's telling us. If someone you know, if your spouse committed adultery, and that's the subject here, what kind of remorse would you want to see before you believe that they were repentant? It's hard to quantify, isn't it? It's hard to describe. But what you'd be looking for is outward evidence, outward evidence that their heart was broken over their sin. And these, this description in verse 9 gets pretty close to it, doesn't it? Be wretched and mourn and weep. James is using every language tool possible here to get, these, get the church to see the egregious devastation of their sin. He goes on, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. That's a reference to Proverbs. The fool in the book of Proverbs laughs and laughs and he carries on and he drinks and he feasts and pretends that everything is okay. When everything is not okay. We watched a river runs through it this weekend as a family. I don't know if you've seen that movie, 1992, so maybe a few of you have. A lot of you haven't. But in the story, you have an older brother and a younger brother. The younger brother in the story is always in all sorts of trouble. He's an alcoholic. He's got massive, unpayable gambling debts. His life is in shambles. He's constantly landing in jail for fighting. And his response to all of that trouble, this broken life, his response is to laugh. Laughing. This, he's pretending that everything is great. He is the proverbial fool. Arrogant, overconfident, trusting that it's all going to work out on account of his intellect and his good works. Meanwhile, his family is struggling. They're in turmoil as they watch this, this young man destroy his life. So it's not that it's wrong to laugh. That's not what James is saying here. It's not wrong to be joyful. It's not wrong to be happy. James isn't saying we should be gloomy people. Christians, of all people, are to be the most joyful people. But our joy does not come from covering up our sin and pretending it's not there. The path to true joy, the path to the, to the joy that we find in Christ, begins with humility. It begins with being subject to Christ, identifying with Christ through baptism and the renewal of the Spirit, drawing near through the Word and prayer in the church, and living a life of repentance. Realizing there's nothing in me. There's nothing in me. All I bring is trouble. All I contribute to my salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. This, this is the, the posture of the broken and contrite heart. This is the posture necessary to receive the grace of God. We are emptied of ourselves and filled with him. And then, then we're exalted and built up by him, filled with the joy of the Spirit and the peace of Christ. And that's where our joy comes from. That's where the true celebration is. And the true fasting and the deep laughter, it's in him, it's not in us. And that's what you see in the last word there, the bottom of the humble sandwich. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he 
will exalt you. Our, our joy comes at his bidding, at his invitation. 